crucial issues that really matter for our lives and for our children's lives and future generations are not even being discussed in the election campaign. Just not discussed. The worst policy, the worst crime of the Trump administration are the climate policy and the nuclear weapons policy. Those just swamp everything else in significance. Is anybody talking about them on the campaign trail? The really critical things are off the agenda. That's Noam Chomsky, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Noam Chomsky on threats to peace and the planet. Part two of a special two-part program. Why are so many people all over the world out in the streets demanding change? What are the root causes of revolt? What about U.S.-Syria policy and the betrayal of the Kurds and BDS and Palestine? How do we overcome sectarian differences? Why are Americans so afraid? Eco-disaster and nuclear war threaten human existence. The former garners some attention because of the surge in youth-led activism, but the latter is out of sight even though the dangers are escalating. The U.S. pulling out of the INF Ballistic Missile Treaty and new Pentagon hypersonic weapons increase the possibility of catastrophe. And what about impeachment and the 2020 election? These are just some of the topics Noam Chomsky talks about in this exclusive two-part interview. Noam Chomsky, one of the greatest intellectuals of this era, practically invented the field of linguistics. In addition to his pioneering work in that field, he has been a leading voice for peace and social justice for many decades. At almost 91, he is the scholar-activist par excellence. As rock star Bono called him, he is the rebel without a pause. I've been privileged over the years to have done many alternative radio programs with him, as well as a series of books. Our latest is Global Discontents. I talked with Noam Chomsky at Pima Community College in Tucson, Arizona, on November 4th, 2019. The occasion was a celebration of the Progressive Magazine's 110th anniversary. The population here in the United States, we're told repeatedly, is polarized. What do you think about uh, someone who has a media diet, not of the progressive magazine or listening to alternative radio or watching Democracy Now!, but is exposed to Fox and Breitbart News and Infowars and Red State and Newsmax and all those other uh, very narrow points of view in, from the media perspective. How do you reach those people? First of all, when people talk about the country being polarized or the political system being polarized, it's a little misleading. The Democrats, the roughly liberal population, are pretty much centrist. Uh, the political party, the Democrats, is not very different from what moderate Republicans used to be. If you read the New York Times, you get a fair range of opinion from 
moderate center left over to far right. It's all there. Uh, but when you turn to Fox News or Breitbart or something, that's different. Then you're in a invented world way off to the right. Uh, so the polarization is it's not mutual. It's uh, one-directional. Uh, but it does lead to a sharply divided population. How do you reach the people? Uh, the way this uh, evangelical uh, professor described it. You don't reach them by ridicule, uh, hatred, or anger, but by recognizing that somewhere down there there's a common humanity. And you've got to go find that, work from there. I'm always uh, looking in, at history for possible lessons and inspiration uh, for what's going on today, Howard Zinn being a, a big influence on me and, and many others. I was in Kansas City uh, very recently and um, learned more about Appeal to Reason. Uh, this was a weekly socialist newspaper that astonishingly in 1910 had a subscription base of 450,000. Uh, I wish today the Progressive Magazine had that many subscribers. Uh, it had a weekly circulation in, in, in the many hundreds of thousands. Its writers were Upton Sinclair, Jack London, Mother Jones, Eugene Debs, and Helen Keller. That's just one example of a past that is largely hidden from view. We have other examples in Oklahoma. Well, I mean, these are states that you would think are on the extreme right and have been historically. Not the case at all. In 1914, Oklahoma had 175 elected socialist officials in the state. Uh, Eugene Victor Debs in 1900 first ran for president, got under 100,000 votes as Socialist Party candidate. In 1920, 10 years later, while he was in prison in Atlanta, he received almost a million votes. Now, today, you know, socialism is being denounced by the occupant in the Oval Office. It's never going to happen in the United States. But because of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, the word has been injected into the political uh, discourse once again. What do you think about the possibilities of a socialist outcome? Well, what you say is quite correct. In fact, the most radical uh, democratic movement in American history was uh, the populist movement. I have to say I shudder when I hear the word populism being used today. It has nothing to do with traditional populism. The populist movement was a movement that started with farmers in Texas and moved through the Midwest, uh, Kansas, uh, Oklahoma, uh, Wisconsin, up to the north, major movement of very radical policies. Uh, they wanted to get rid of the northern bankers uh, who lent them money at, with uh, you know, demanding the usurious uh, payments, uh, controlled the marketing system. They wanted to control it themselves, cooperatively owned banks, cooperative organization of marketing, uh, basically developing a socialist society at the base, huge movement. They were just beginning to link up with the Knights of Labor, the first major 
labor movement, again, a very huge, mostly urban-based movement, which had radical uh, uh, political goals. I mean, one of their slogans was that those who work in the mills should own them. People should not be, it's hard to remember maybe, but a slogan of the Republican Party uh, back in the mid-19th century, Lincoln's Republican Party, was that there's no difference between wage labor and slavery except that uh, wage labor is temporary until a person can become free again. But no one should be uh, at the command of a master. That's intolerable. Uh, that was the view of that was the view of working people and their press and so on. And there's a very rich radical background in the country, uh, far beyond what what uh, uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren or anybody's talking about. In fact, what's called socialism today is sort of New Deal liberalism. I mean, the maybe extended uh, so. Uh, the programs, the policies that Sanders is advocating, it wouldn't really have surprised uh, President Eisenhower very much. You read Eisenhower's statements about labor rights or the New Deal. He was, he said, and any political figure who doesn't accept the New Deal and support the rights of working men doesn't to unionize, doesn't belong in our political system. You know, that's not Sanders. That's Eisenhower. Uh, the country has shifted so far to the right that what looks like a radical revolutionary position used to be normal. And uh, as you mentioned, the, among the many forms of American exceptionalism, so-called, is that the word socialism, which usually means moderate social democracy, uh, the word has become a curse word. That's not true anywhere else. If somebody somewhere else says he's a socialist, or for that matter, a communist, it just means you're kind of on the critical edge of the political system. Here, it's uh, it's been turned into a, a four-letter word. You can't utter it. So Sanders seems uh, to be breaking uh, all kind of rules when he uses the word, which is standard everywhere else. Uh, but uh, yes, there's a rich tradition. Actually, uh, Gabriel Kalko, who both of us know a great historian died a couple of years ago. Uh, he has a very interesting book on American history uh, called uh, Mainstream of American History. Actually, it came out under several different titles, but it's very much worth reading. Uh, one of the things he argues is that after the populist movement in the United States was sort of pretty much crushed by force, uh, many of the radical farmers it just left for Canada and formed the basis of the Canadian uh, social democratic movement, because that's one of the reasons for the relatively more progressive character of Canadian politics. The people just left, uh, people who were represented by Bob LaFollette, the founder of the progressive and others. Uh, so yes, there was a and in fact, I don't think this is very far below the surface. If you penetrate surface propaganda, I think people tend to accept these ideas. You can see it, for example, in uh, polls about uh, almost you know, any issue you look at, say, medical care. I mean, 
there's been enormous propaganda, corporate propaganda, to try to demonize the idea of some form of national health care. But if you look at polls going far back, when people are asked about it, is health a right that the government should defend? You get very high support. In fact, in, in the Reagan years, uh, when one of, the que- one of the questions that Gallup, Gallup poll asked was, uh, do you think there ought to be a constitutional amendment that uh, guarantees the right to health care? About 70% of the population agreed. In fact, about 40% of the population thought there already was such a constitutional amendment because it's so obviously the right thing. Uh, you take a look at a referenda on this over the years. They start with uh, enormous support for national health care. Then the corporate propaganda starts. You won't be able to see your doctor. Uh, you know, you'll lose your health care. Uh, uh, the government's going to take everything from you. It goes on and on. Uh, you see the numbers supporting it drop. Uh, we're seeing that right now, in fact. Uh, the, the popular support is right below the surface on major issues, gets beaten down by scare tactics. Okay. Uh, so right now, in the New York Times, you know, kind of a moderately liberal journal, when uh, you see an article on Warren's proposal, it's all about how it's unaffordable. Uh, you don't see an article about how the fact that it'll cut American health care spending probably by about half, judging by the model in other advanced countries. Huge savings. It's possible that taxes will go up, but other savings will go way down. And incidentally, you might want to think about that. We have a slogan in the United States that the only thing you can't escape is death and taxes. Taxes are considered a horrible burden. You think about it for a minute, and you can see that attitudes towards taxes is a measure, pretty good measure, of the extent to which a country is democratic. If, if you had a perfect democracy, you know, people getting together, making decisions, uh, informed and deliberation, deciding here's the plans we want for next year, here's the way we're going to pay for them. In a country like that, uh, April 15th would be a day for celebration. We made the decisions. We decided what we wanted. We decided we're going to pay for how we're going to pay for it. Now we're doing it. What's to complain? So, in a real democracy, taxes would be applauded. As you take a look at the at the very other extreme, pure dictatorship, taxes would be hated. Taxes are just something that that alien force, the government, steals from you. Okay, we obviously don't want that. Uh, you might ask yourself where the United States lies in this spectrum and what that implies. None of this is quantum physics. It's right on the surface. Any 10-year-old kid can understand it in no time. But but you have to penetrate the surface, the surface of doctrine and uh, propaganda and ideology. And I think when you do, you find a lot of common humanity, lots of ways for people to overcome the uh, divisiveness that seems to uh, plague them on the surface. Electoral politics 
can people are asking, can Trump be beaten in the 2020 election and who can do it? Your guess is as good as mine. I don't have any crystal ball on that. I think it's touch and go. Depends on popular mobilization, uh, dedication, uh, commitment, on breaking through uh, the flood of lies and distortions. Uh, we should mention something that we all know but don't talk about. The crucial issues that really matter for our lives and for our children's lives and future generations are not even being discussed in the election campaign. Okay? Just not discussed. The worst policy, the worst crime of the Trump administration, there are lots of crimes, but the worst ones, far and away beyond any others, are the climate policy and the nuclear weapons policy. Those just swamp everything else in significance. Is anybody talking about them on the campaign trail? I mean, in the impeachment proceedings, are they an issue? The really critical things are off the agenda. Is If you ask uh, whether Trump can be defeated, one of the ways is putting those things right in the center of political concern. Uh, everybody except... Uh, you know, somebody who's really pathological maniac uh, wants their grandchildren to have a decent life. Uh, nobody wants their grandchildren uh, to hate them as the worst criminals in history, which is what's going to happen as things are going. Who wants that? Not many people, I don't think. Just to put a few more dollars in your pocket. Uh, well, I think people can be reached on that. Let me ask you about something called PEP. Have you heard of that? PEP. Progressive Except Palestine. Oh. <laughs> it's kind of an, an interesting aspect of our scene in this country that many who advocate the rule of law, promote human rights, extol the principle of self-determination, and call for freedom and justice everywhere except for Palestine. And that issue has been so central to your political activism and commitment uh, over the years. And you know, here we are at, almost at the end of 2019, and Palestine is still asunder, still under occupation. Worse than that. Uh, Gaza, which is the most uh, horrendous victim, is probably going to become literally uninhabitable within a few years under constant Israeli attack, uh, boycott, uh, closing of borders, closing of opportunities to destroying the, uh, the health system, the power system, the sanitation, uh, preventing uh, uh, fishermen from going out more than a couple of miles, uh, uh, constant military attacks, uh, slaughter or destruction. Uh, the uh, UN monitors are literally predicting that in a couple of years it'll be uninhabitable. Uh, meanwhile, the West Bank, the rest of the areas, uh, is being uh, sliced up by settlement programs, which are designed, as has been going on since uh, the late, about 1970, one way or another, both major political groupings are involved in a, a systematic plan to construct a kind of greater Israel, 
which will include which includes a vast what what's called now Jerusalem, which is about five times the size of what it ever was, took in lots of Palestinian villages, which under Trump, uh, changing U.S. policy, has now uh, been uh, authorized to be annexed by Israel. It's a sharp change. Uh, to the east, uh, there are corridors built which bisect uh, uh, the what remains of the Palestinian territory, uh, all Jewish towns, Maldad, Dumim, Ariel, others uh, put there. And it's all being integrated into Israel by uh, very extensive infrastructure developments. If any of you happen to have visited, you know that you can travel around the West Bank on superhighways and uh, not even know that there's a Palestinian in existence. Uh, these are all Jewish-only or tourist-only uh, uh, road structures. Meanwhile, the areas of Palestinian population concentration are being avoided and encircled. There's like the heavy, heavy population in, say, Nablus. Don't touch that. Uh, the idea is to create a system in which, when it all gets integrated and annexed into Israel, it won't affect what they call the demographic problem. The demographic problem means that too many non-Jews in a Jewish state. Okay, So it won't affect that because the Palestinian populations are either being avoided or, or they're being expelled, like in the Jordan Valley, it's largely being expelled, uh, which Israel tends to take over. Uh, by now, the Palestinians, I think they're about... 160 or so Palestinian enclaves, which are pretty much separated from one another. Uh, farmers are separated from their fields and so on. Very systematic policy. Uh, that's what's been developing before our eyes for pretty much 50 years. Uh, the U.S. has been supporting it, gives it enormous aid. Uh, how about the population here? What do they think about it? I think that's pretty interesting. It used to be an untouchable issue. For years, uh, I've tried to give talks on this. I literally had to have police protection in universities. Um, I go to a major university and to take one case, UCLA in this case, back in the 80s, I spent a week giving philosophy lectures, but I was also giving political talks, as I usually do when I go somewhere. And most of them were on Central America at that time. But one professor, uh, a guy who actually happened to be teaching half the year in Tel Aviv, uh, asked me to give a talk on the Middle East. I said, of course, glad to. Uh, the next day I got a phone call from the campus police saying uh, they wanted me to have uh, uniform police uh, with me the entire time I was on campus. I didn't accept that, so they had undercover police following me around the whole time, sitting in on philosophy lectures. Uh, uh, the talk itself was under airport security, you know, one entrance, inspecting handbags and so on. There were meetings physically broken up, even at my own university, MIT. It was uh, almost impossible to talk about it. Nobody complained at that time about free speech or anything. Uh, this was fine. It changed. About uh, 15 20 years ago, this started a change. It's now radically different. 
you go to give a talk on Israel-Palestine, you can barely get a hostile question. Uh, it's not necessarily a good thing, because there's issues that should be thought about. But there's a radical change. Uh, it shows up even in polls. So, for example, uh, the base for uh, support for Israeli policies used to be in liberal America. Uh, the Democrats were the main source for support for Israeli policies. Radically changed. And now uh, a majority of uh, people who identify themselves as liberal Democrats are more supportive of Palestinians. This is especially true among young people. Support for Israel in the United States has moved over to the far right. Uh, evangelical Christians, uh, ultranationalists, uh, a part of the Republican Party. Uh, this offers real opportunities for changes in American uh, policy. Unfortunately, it's not being pressed by the by solidarity movements. I think this should be at the top of their the top priority, getting U.S. policy to change. And I don't think that's impossible. Uh, just looking at the public attitudes, and looking at the actual policies, uh, you should bear in mind that U.S. Mil military aid, probably all aid to Israel, is illegal under U.S. law. That's a point that could be pressed and made public. Why is it illegal? Well, for one thing, because of the Symington Amendment, 1974, uh, which uh, bans U.S. aid, particularly military aid, to any country that uh, constructs nuclear weapons and does not accept the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Well, Israel, of course, does. has a huge nu nuclear arsenal. Uh, the way the U.S. gets around it is by pretending, I stress pretending, that it doesn't know that Israel has nuclear weapons. Of course, everybody knows it's a perfectly open secret. But they pretend we don't know. You know, maybe they do, maybe they don't. So we can keep pouring military aid. Uh, uh, Obama had this huge flood of military aid, $30 million over 10 years, something like that, by pretending that they don't know that, uh, that Israel has nuclear weapons. Uh, there's also the what's called the Leahy Law, Patrick Leahy, which bans military aid to any uh, military unit that is engaged in systematic human rights violations. Uh, the human rights violations are so extreme that we don't even have to talk about them. I think those are issues that could be pressed. Actually, they have a lot of significance beyond Israel. So take uh, what's considered uh, one of the major, and is in fact one of the major problems, dangers in world affairs, the conflict between the United States and Iran. As you know, of course, uh, Trump broke the, uh, the joint agreement under which uh, Iran was banned from developing nuclear weapons, broke that, and imposed extreme sanctions to try to destroy the economy. And remember, the U.S. is the U.S. is the only country in the world that can impose sanctions. Just look around; no other country imposes sanctions. They don't have the power to do it. 
but U.S. power is so enormous that it can sanction anybody it wants and destroy their economy. And furthermore, U.S. sanctions are imposed on third parties. So if, say, Sweden wants to break the U.S. sanctions on Cuba, they'll be cut out of the international financial system, which the U.S. controls. Europe wants to continue the agreement with Iran, but they can't because the U.S. can cut them out of the international financial system. This is an extraordinary level of power, rarely discussed, uh, but think about it. Uh, there's, there's a very great danger now that conflicts in the Gulf uh, could, even just by accident, uh, break out and lead to war in the region. You're listening to Noam Chomsky on Threats to Peace and the Planet, Part 2 of a special two-part program. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program and the book, Global Discontents, by calling 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Well, is there a way to deal with the threat of, alleged threat, of Iran nuclear weapons? That is a very simple way to end that threat, which is never discussed. How? Uh, Introduce a nuclear weapons-free zone in the Middle East with uh, strict verification. And we have very good reason to believe that verification works. Even U.S. intelligence agrees that uh, verification of Iran, Iran activities under the joint agreement was perfect. They couldn't find any uh, tight, tight verification, no violations. So introduce a nuclear weapons-free zone with verification. That would end any possible concern about Iranian nuclear weapons. Uh, are there barriers to that? I mean, is Iran a barrier? Not at all. Iran's been vociferously calling for it for many years. Uh, what about the Arab states? They're the ones who initiated the proposal uh, 20 years ago. Continually bring it up. They want a nuclear weapons-free zone. Uh, what about Europe? Uh, they support it. Uh, what about the non-aligned countries? Most of the world, they strongly support it. There's one barrier. It's called the United States. Uh, this issue comes up every five years at the non-proliferation treaty review meetings. The last time was 2015 under Obama. Obama vetoed it. Everybody knows exactly why, but you can't talk about it because it would mean that the U.S. would have to acknowledge the existence of Israeli military weapons, nuclear weapons, and furthermore, there would be inspection of Israel's huge nuclear arsenal. That not only can't be done, but it can't even be talked about, right? Try to find a word about it. I mean, I've written about it forever, a couple other people, but just people way at the margins. And this has to do with the one of the major issues in world affairs, uh, the possibility of a war uh, with Iran. But it cannot be discussed. There's a tremendous amount at stake. It's not just Israel and Palestine. Uh, a, a war 
in the Middle East with Iran would have horrifying consequences. It wouldn't reach the United States. We're too far away. But uh, if there's an attack on Iran, almost certain that they would immediately attack uh, the world's major oil resources, which happen to be in northeast Saudi Arabia, uh, in a Shiite area right near Iran. The Shiite population is already very harshly repressed. It's also the main center for Saudi uh, desalination uh, operations, which they depend on. Uh, Iran would certainly attack that right away, and then it would blow up, and who knows where it would go. That would be a horrible affair. Why is that a danger? Because we're not allowed to admit that Israel has nuclear weapons. Just think about that for a minute. What kind of a country are we where this can be happening? Just to add something else, the U.S. and Britain have a unique responsibility to move for a nuclear weapons-free zone in the region because of something else that's never discussed. Uh, When the U.S. and Britain uh, decided to invade Iraq, uh, they had to concoct some sort of fake legal argument to support it. That's what lawyers are for. Uh, One of the things they did was uh, refer to a U.N. Security Council resolution in 1991 which called on Saddam to terminate his nuclear weapons production, which in fact he had done. We know that story. But if you read that resolution, get down to one of the lower article 14 of the resolution, it commits the signers of the resolution, the United States and Britain, to work to establish a nuclear weapons-free zone in the region. We are uniquely uh, res- responsible, committed, have, have a responsibility to do this. None of this can be discussed, and a tremendous amount is at stake, a possible devastating war. But you can't talk about it. Uh, will you be shot if you can talk about it? No, it's not a dictatorship. We're all free to talk about it. I've been talking about it for years. I'm still standing here, sitting here. But uh, So it's a very free country. But we don't use our freedom, okay? Uh, and it's, it's our fault. We can. And a lot is at stake. There's plenty of issues like this around the world. And like I say, they're, they're not quantum physics. They're not hard to figure out. It just takes a little, little thought. Well, what would constitute uh, justice for the Palestinians in your view? What do they want? The Palestinians? Yes. Well, you know... For a long time, what they wanted, majority opinion, was in favor of a Palestinian state alongside Israel. Actually, that... uh, The two-state solution. Two-state solution. Uh, That's, again, not talked about here, but if you go back uh, to the early 70s, that became a major issue on the international agenda. So in 1976... uh, a resolution was introduced in the UN Security Council, which was supported by the major Arab states, uh, Egypt, uh, Syria, Jordan, called for a two-state settlement on the internationally recognized border with guarantees for the right of each state 
to exist, I'm quoting it, to exist in peace and security within secure and recognized borders. Uh, Israel was infuriated. They refused to attend the session. Uh, the United States vetoed it, okay? Continued to veto similar resolutions in later years. Uh, that's, you know, you could argue that the border shouldn't be right on the border. It's a, it's a, uh, it's, it's a military demarcation line, so maybe you straighten it out or something. But uh, that's, that was a possible solution, and that was majority of Palestinian uh, opinion for a long time. By now, mo many Palestinians, probably most, have given up hope on that. They say it's just impossible. The settlement has reached such a level that it can't be done. I, personally, I don't agree with that. I think it's still in the ballpark if American policy shifts. But uh, that leaves them without an option. Uh, many Palestinians, including Palestinian intellectuals, talk about uh, what they call a one-state solution. There should be one state from the Jordan to the Mediterranean with equal rights for everyone. That's simply not an option. Uh, I mean, you can talk because. about it. For a very simple reason. First of all, it has zero international support. It's not going to be supported by African states, for example. States are very jealous of their sovereignty. And notice that a one-state solution means Israel goes out of existence. As a Jewish state. As, as, as it is now constituted. It's not going to be Israel anymore. It's going to be a majority Palestinian state, whatever you call it. There is no support for that anywhere. Furthermore, if there were any support, Israel would use every weapon at its command, including its huge nuclear arsenals, to prevent it. It's kind of academic because there's no, no support for it. But if anything developed, it would never develop. So putting your hope in that is totally meaningless. In fact, the choices today, and for several years, have been between a two-state settlement and, uh, and some sort of greater Israel with Palestinians essentially, um, you know, like tossed, tossed away. Uh, you can... I mean, you could argue, and it has been argued, that there could be some kind of one-state settlement which maintains uh, Jewish sovereignty but allows some kind of rule for Palestinians, a kind of mildly apartheid state. Not pretty, but maybe that could be. What's your position on boycott, divestment, and sanctions? Are you in favor or against well, first of all, it's, it's boycott and, and divestment. There's no sanctions. That's just a slogan. BDS. BDS is a slogan. Mm. But the reality is BD. So let's be honest about it. Uh, sanctions only come from the United States, and they're not coming. Okay. So what about boycott and divestment? I think those are good tactics. But you have to think when you carry out tactics. You have to think about how... You, you can't just say, I have a catechism and I'm going to apply it. You have to say, how am I going to apply it? Well, if you take a look at the, uh, actually the boycott and divestment uh, initiatives began in 1997 uh, 
from uh, Uri of Neri's uh, leading uh, Israeli uh, activist, left activist, Uri of Neri and his uh, group, Gush Shalom, the peace group, uh, uh, organized a boycott divestment campaign uh, aimed at Israel's occupation of the occupied territories. That made very good sense. Uh, that's a clear issue, uh, plenty of support for it, no way of opposing it, and it strikes right at the heart of the major issues. And there have been successes in that, like, for example, the Presbyterian Church, big organization, uh, not only uh, in, uh, carry, has a boycott divestment uh, program against the settlements, but also against U.S. multinationals, which are involved in any way in the settlements. And that's exactly the right program. That kind of thing has been successful. Uh, most of that has been done outside the BDS movement. They have a catechism, three points. Uh, one point is uh, the occupation. Second point is all Palestinian refugees have to return to, have to have the right of return to Israel. Third, we have to boycott Israel until it provides equal rights for Palestinians. Well, you can argue about whether those latter two goals are right or wrong, but one thing is very clear about them. They're not going to be realized, and they are going to engender a reaction which is stronger than the protest. Uh, they're going to engender cries of anti-Semitism, academic freedom, uh, diverting attention away from the Palestinians to some extraneous issue, uh, legislation to ban it because it's, uh, it's anti-Semitic, uh, why Israel, not a dozen other countries, and so on. Uh, it's going to be condemned as utterly hypocritical. If you boycott Tel Aviv University, why not boycott Harvard? U.S. has a far worse record than Israel does. And aside from being unprincipled, the goals are unrealizable, and their main effect is to divert attention away from the plight of Palestinians to something else. Uh, freedom of speech, uh, academic freedom, uh, uh, legisla uh, oppressive legislations, everything but the plight of Palestinians. That's a very pointless choice of tactics. The right tactics, I think, are apparent. They ought to be focused on the occupation and on U.S. government policy, kinds of things I mentioned, which can be changed. Uh, even, a, even a threat of cutback of U.S. aid, even a credible threat would have an enormous effect. And I think that uh, those are pretty feasible goals. There are plenty of Americans across the board who, if they knew about it, wouldn't see any reason to... Uh, provide military aid to a, a, that happens to be in violation of U.S. law. A lot of people would be opposed to that. Uh, it's also a way to bring up the major issues. On the other hand, concentrating on, say, the right of return, first of all, it's never going to happen. Everybody knows it's never going to happen. And it diverts attention away from the real issues. Okay? Uh, same with... Uh, you know, cultural boycotts, maybe you can give an argument for them, but their effect in the real world is to divert attention away from the plight of Palestinians. That's the last thing you want in a solidarity movement.
So I think there's a, while the BDS movement has great opportunities, I don't think it's realizing them because of the rigid structure of the doctrine that it accepts. And you just can't deal with the world that way. You can't have rigid doctrines that you try to apply whatever the human consequences. You're never going to get anywhere that way uh, in personal life or anything else. But you do see cracks in what you described as a monolithic support for Israel. Oh, plenty. Take a look at uh, public opinion among liberal Democrats or among younger people. As you mentioned, yeah. Mm. You, You don't have the experience you used to when you give a talk on this issue. Some were uh, startled by your position in terms of advocating for a small U.S. troop presence in northern Syria along the uh, Turkish border in the uh, so-called Rajaba area, that is to say the autonomous Kurdish state that had been established in that area. What was your thinking behind that? Because you're, you're the uh, sine qua non anti-imperialist, anti-interventionist. Well, what was the, uh, I mean, you have to understand that life, human life, isn't an axiom system. Uh, We don't have absolute principles that apply in every situation. Human life is much more complicated than that. There are conflicting values, and you have to ask in particular situations, what are the human consequences of the choices you're making? So let's take this one. Uh, There was a small U.S. contingent, actually a couple hundred soldiers, in the Kurdish areas, uh, which was a deterrent against a Turkish invasion. Uh, Turkey, you look at the background, inside Turkey, the Turkish government is carrying out extremely harsh repression and massacres of its Kurdish population. This goes way back, incidentally. Uh, Turkey invaded Syria already, took over part of Syria, extended the repression there, ethnic cleansing, massacres, and so on. Turkey wants to move on to other areas of Kurdish-dominated areas. What's going to happen if they do? Well, we could speculate before. Now we can see it, exactly what was predicted. Further ethnic cleansing, further massacres. That was being deterred by a small U.S. contingent which had basically no other function except uh, backing up the the Kurdish war against ISIS. Uh, Trump likes to say that he defeated ISIS. Actually, it's the Kurds who defeated ISIS with some American support in the back. There were 11,000 Kurds, men and women, killed in the fight, uh, six Americans. Uh, The U.S. U.S. Special Forces were backing up the fight, and U.S. air power was, of course, used, but the fighting on the ground was the Kurds. They're the ones who are, who, with a tweet in the morning, uh, Trump decided to just hand over to their bitter enemies, uh, Turkey and uh, the Assad government. Uh, Fortunately for them, uh, Russia moved in. You're not supposed to say anything nice about Russia here, but in that region, uh, they happen to be the moderate moderating force that's leading to some kind of diplomatic settlement. Maybe we don't like it, but uh, 
but it's a lot better than continuing this horrendous war which is destroying Syria. And the Russians apparently have moved in to restrict the Turkish invasion. Uh, so maybe it won't be as bad as could have been forecast, but it's already pretty bad. Uh, I don't see any problem with uh, having a deterrent U.S. force there at the time. I think uh, we should be careful not to turn our principles into kind of like a catechism that applies no matter what the circumstances. Uh, human life just doesn't allow that. And this isn't the first time the U.S. has betrayed the Kurds. Oh, God, no. It's practically a qualification for a president, literally. Uh, hard to find. Back to Ford, in fact. It's 1935, every single one. Uh, often in awful ways. Uh, like Reagan, for example, when the uh, Saddam Hussein, who the U.S. was supporting at the time, uh, carried out a major massacres of Kurds in, uh, uh, in uh, northern Iraq, uh, chemical warfare attacks, uh, killing hundreds of thousands of people and so on. Uh, the Re Reagan tried to deflect the blame to Iran uh, when Congress was trying to react in some way uh, Reagan actually vetoed their effort to react. This is then later when the U.S. decided to invade Iraq. Uh, they used this massacre of the Kurds as a part of the basis for the invasion. Uh, how can we let a how can we let somebody like that survive? Who was carried out the Halabja massacre with chemical weapons? Uh, the cynicism is unbelievable. Uh, take Clinton in the, the 1990s was the, uh, the Turkish repression of the Kurds inside Turkey has a very ugly history. Uh, the peak of the repression was in the 1990s. How did the U.S. react to Clinton administration? By sharply increasing military, uh, the flow of military aid to the Turkish government that was carrying out the atrocities. As the atrocities rose, military aid rose. 1997, the peak of the atrocities, Clinton sent more aid in that one year than all of U.S. military aid to Turkey from the beginning of the Cold War up to the onset of the counterinsurgency. Almost nobody knew about it here. Very little reporting. The news bureaus had, of course, offices in Ankara. Good journalists. They weren't reporting. On Tuesday, August 20th, at 8 a.m., the FBI came to my door, agents Carlos Medina and Brian Palmer. They wanted to know about my trip to Iran and whether I knew certain people, and they wanted me to share my experiences in Iran. We're interested in your story, they said, because the Iranian government targets people just like you to manipulate. I said very little, and uh, you know, I told them to just leave. Um, and they did leave after about 10 minutes. But it was just enough to scare my wife, Kadriye, who's from Turkey, and has some experience with uh, state authorities knocking on doors or breaking doors down. Uh, and initially, she thought they were Jehovah Witnesses. Because <laughs> they look like that. They look like that stereotype. So as someone who has spent a lifetime uh, in dissent and confronting uh, state power, 
and its depredations. I know you've had some experiences with what um, John Trudell called the Federal Bureau of Intimidation. Yeah, I've had experiences. But uh, some of them are kind of funny. So, for example, uh, take the Pentagon Papers. Uh, I, was, I was a friend of Dan Ellsberg's. I, was, I had advanced copies of the Pentagon Papers, and uh, I was one of the people helping to distribute them while he was underground, hadn't identified himself. I was getting phone calls from newspapers in the United States and Europe and elsewhere asking if they could get a piece of the Pentagon Papers. They didn't have any trouble finding me. The FBI never found me, literally. They did come to my door, like to you, but after Down surfaced and identified himself, and wouldn't talk to them, but... uh, the incompetence of the intelligence agencies is pretty astonishing. I mean, I can, if we had time, unfortunately we don't, I've got to leave. But there's amazing stories about this. One of the reasons is they're always looking for people like themselves. Uh, for example, during the, some of the trials of the resistance, the FBI was never able to find out what was being done because they were always looking for where are the orders coming from? Are they coming from North Korea, you know, Hungary? Couldn't be that Americans are standing up and saying, in town hall, New York, and saying, I hereby conspire to, uh, we hereby conspire to undermine the selective service system. We'll forget about that. That's got to be, that's enough to put them all in jail. But we're not going to look at that because that's obviously cover for something. So let's find out what's really going on. That's what was going on, nothing else. (laughs) It's one of the ways to fox intelligence services. Well, I want to thank you all for coming this evening. I hope you'll support Alternative Radio. And finally, I want to ask Professor Noam Chomsky uh, this question. You're turning 91 on December 7th. So they claim. As you move forward, what, uh, what do you have up your sleeve? <laughs> Not going to tell you. <laughs> At 97, maybe I'll tell you. At 97, we'll be back, hopefully. Thanks very much, Norm, and thank okay. you all for coming. That was Noam Chomsky on Threats to Peace and the Planet, part two of a special two-part program. I talked with him at Pima Community College in Tucson, Arizona, on November 4, 2019. The occasion was a celebration of the Progressive Magazine's 110th anniversary. Noam Chomsky is a legendary scholar-activist. He's been a leading voice for peace and social justice for many decades. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 34th year. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature progressive voices rarely heard in the media. And since its inception, AR has featured and archived the work of Noam Chomsky. We have more than 250 recordings of his lectures and interviews. 
To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of the complete two-part program, Noam Chomsky on Threats to Peace and the Planet, and the book, Global Discontents, just call us at one 800 444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Special thanks to Norman Stockwell, Daniel Libby, and The Progressive Magazine. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Visit us online at cjsw.com.